You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present our program, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Showman. Hi, this is Roy Showman, and welcome once again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. I'm very excited today. I apologize if there was a little bit of a late start to the show, but I do once again have a fellow Hebrew Catholic guest on to talk about both her perspective on the relationship between Judaism and and the Catholic Church, and also perhaps to tell a little bit about her witness testimony. And she, in fact, is um, in the is in Ireland right now. So we had a little little technical glitch that slowed things up by a couple of minutes, for which I apologize. Um, now, this, uh, this, this guest that we have on, I had the pleasure of meeting a number of years ago when I was speaking, I believe it was in Oxford in the United Kingdom, and she was at the time a graduate student doing theology studies in the um, Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, essentially. Uh, since then, she's gone on in her studies, and she might mention that a little bit. But what brought her to mind and what initiated the idea for today's show is, in fact, that I read a post that she had written on a, on a website, on a blog, that talked about the, um, well, talked about the nature of Jewish law, talked about what the real meaning of being obedient to the law in Judaism was, and how that relates to obedience to Catholic tradition and liturgy. So I thought that would be a good place to start our discussion for today, uh, would be by reading that blog letter that she posted, and um, we can talk about it as we go along. And and, um, our guest, her name is Angela, um, can uh, either interrupt and talk about it as we go along or talk about it after the letter. Uh, after I read the letter, it's her choice. You're there, Angela, right? I am here. Yeah, finally, at last. Thanks. <laughs> all's, all's well that ends well. And um, the uh, I also want to say before I start reading this letter and start the conversation with Angela, that this is a live radio show, and we very much welcome callers. So if you wish to call in, the number here is 866-333-MARY or 866-333-MARY. 6279, and you're more than welcome to call with questions or comments at any point during the show. We'd be happy to hear. Um, and so let me begin by reading this letter of Angela's. Um, and I think you'll see why it's so relevant as I, as I go along. There has been a lot of talk lately about Catholics who are, quote, too rigid, close quote. Those who attend the Latin Mass have been derided for placing love of tradition over love of each other. Um, I can relate to this accusation. I love the Tridentine Mass. I go to it. I, I go at almost every opportunity. I can also relate to this accusation for another reason. I am a Hebrew Catholic. That is, I am also Jewish. And as a Jew, of course, I have something to say. If ever one group were derided by the church at large for legalism, it would have to be us. Stemming from the accusations against the Pharisees in the New Testament, you have to admit, 
we Jews have faced all sorts of these accusations. Indeed, are we not the ones who pass by the man on the road, leaving a Samaritan to care for him? Are we not the ones who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel, modern-day Pharisees? As a Jew in the church, then, surely it is not surprising that I find myself in this, quote, rigid, close quote, category. The truth is that Jews are often misunderstood in their love of the law. So, too, are more traditional Catholics. Being scrupulous is the plague of anyone trying to be holy. That is true. But attention to detail in keeping the law, a desire to do what is right, is not the same as scruples, even if they might sometimes creep in. Angela, do you have anything you want to add at this point, or should I just continue? Um, well, basically, the, the reason I wrote it is very much out of personal experience. Uh, these are accusations that I have faced on a fairly regular basis from various people, be it friends, uh, colleagues, um, even priests. So um, I'd just like to say to the audience that it really does come from the heart of my son. And these are accusations of uh, being too legalistic in your observance of of the rules of Catholicism? Absolutely, yes. Um, I only started really attending the, Latin, the traditional Latin Mass in Oxford when I was doing my Masters in Jewish Studies. Um, and I think people thought it was maybe a little bit strange. Uh, I, had a, I was living in a convent at the time, and it was very much Novus Ordo there. And they thought I was all a bit, uh, a bit odd going to Tridentine Masses uh, whenever I could. And it was because they thought it was legalistic. They didn't really see the beauty and the mystery. For them, it was um, almost a, a cold ritual. Uh, they didn't see the spirituality behind it. And that's why I was accused of legalism. Well, this reminds me of two things. Um... Um, one is that um, I, I mentioned to the, you, this to you before the show, but when I entered the church as a Jew, I immediately resonated more strongly with the Tridentine Rite, with the Old Mass, so to speak, the Latin Rite Mass, because it reminded me much more of the Jewish view of holiness, of sacred objects. It, it even looked a lot more like a temple service than Novus Ordo, uh, you know, with the tabernacle in the center, with the incredible reverence shown to the Eucharist, which echoed the reverence shown to the physical object of the Torah and Judaism and so forth. I imagine that was a factor for you, too. Absolutely. Um, I think we, in the Novus Ordo, there tends to be a focus on, if any, Jewish ritual, the uh, Seder and Pesach, Passover. Um, in the the old rite, we see much more a Yom Kippur theology, and that's evident from the very beginning where we have um, uh, comments about entering the Holy of Holies as the, the priest ascends the altar. Now that there's only one day in the year in the Jewish calendar when a priest can enter the Holy of Holies, and that's Yom Kippur. And immediately as a Jew, that says to you, I am on the threshold of the most holy event I will ever experience in this life. Um, I think when we, we think of the Mass, it's very easy in the Novus Ordo because of this focus on Passover to forget that 
the sacrifice of Christ is actually the culmination of all Israelite sacrifice. And so if we're going to be thinking in terms of Israelite sacrifice, we also need to be thinking in terms of that holiest day of the year, which was Yom Kippur. And there are various things throughout the Mass that kind of reflect that, um, starting from the overt reference to the Holy of Holies, right through to the fact that um, we have... At the consecration, a little bit of water being added to the wine. Um, now, that is actually a symbol of the church from the earliest days. Uh, the church fathers talk about that water as being a symbol, a symbol of the church itself, being kind of united to the sacrifice. Now, in Yom Kippur, what happened was that the priest would offer a sacrifice first for himself and for his sins, and then for the sins of Israel. And so... Just these, these little things, these tiny little details, all point to Yom Kippur. Let me um, backfill a little bit for some of our listeners who may be a little less familiar with Yom Kippur and Passover and even the, their relationship to the Mass. And, you know, I am I, going to be talking, but that doesn't mean I don't want you to interrupt, Angela. I, I'm very, you know, I, I prefer this to be a conversational, but I, I wanted to say that... Um, in some sense, one can imagine it being a little bit confusing because if you think of the Last Supper, if you think of Passover, there, there are two components to a Passover Seder, which, of course, the Last Supper was a Passover Seder. One is the animal sacrifice, the, the Passover lamb, which was already sacrificed by the time they sat down at the Last Supper, of course. And the other is the communal meal, partaking of the sacrifice, the the eating of the of the Passover Seder meal. And you know what's interesting? By the time we get to the second temple, the Passover sacrifice is treated like an Ola offering. Um, so it's it's considered not just slaughtered animal for a meal, but a proper sacrifice. And it's roasted. Um, now that's un- unusual for a sacrifice uh, for the whole animal to be roasted in ancient Israelite tradition. But what that symbolizes is that the, um, the, the roasting is basically the beast being given over to God because fire was a way of transferring things to the spiritual realm. But when we partake and we consume of the, the roasted animal, we're actually sharing in a divine meal with God. Um, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. The sacrificial side, especially at the Second Temple, was of paramount importance. And, well, as you were saying that, it, it very um, vibrantly brought forth the image of the Mass, right? Because which is simultaneously the sacrifice to God and the partaking of that sacrifice in the consumption exactly. of the Eucharist. Exactly. And uh, it was, I'm not saying by any means that it wasn't foreshadowed in Passover. It was in a very special way. Um, but in the same way at Passover, we have... Um, kind of when we sit down at Seder, we have uh, an anamnesis of not just the original meal, so not just in our case, uh, Holy Thursday, uh, but also everything that came afterwards. So the exodus, the the wandering, the uh, the rest eventually in the Holy Land. And so what we have is Christ's sacrifice for sin, his Yom Kippur, being made present through all its stages, uh, because, of course, in Jewish tradition, uh, sacrifice doesn't end with immolation. It begins with immolation, and it ends with uh, the sacrifice being 
burnt normally. Um, so we move from the meal on Good Friday, uh, sorry, on Holy Thursday, which in Jewish times would be, would be the Friday, um, through to the crucifixion, through to the resurrection, and into the ascension. So Passover Anamnesis basically makes present Christ's atoning Yom Kippur, his atoning uh, offering for sin. Why don't you talk a little bit, if you can, about, um, I mean, we're, we're more familiar with the parallel, so to speak, between Passover and the Mass than between Yom Kippur and the Mass. In what ways is the Mass also a recapitulation of, of Yom Kippur, or Yom Kippur, of prefigurement of the Mass? Okay, so on Yom Kippur, we had... Uh, first of all, the the priest would uh, cleanse him, himself. He would have it would be a period of eight days of preparation, and then on the eighth day, and that's significant for us as Catholics because Sunday is the eighth day. We read in the Catechism that it's the beginning of a new creation, so that's foreshadowed in Yom Kippur already. Um, then on on that day, the high priest would offer a sacrifice first for himself. Uh, then one for all Israel. And there would be two goats. And the offering for all of Israel would have been taken from one of those goats and had to be exactly like in appearance. The other goat was sent off, uh, probably down a ravine. That's what we read in the Mishnah, uh, to Azazel. Um, some people say Azazel is a demon. We're not really quite sure what's going on there. But as that beast is, or that uh, goat is kind of uh, thrown out, as it were, driven out, um, the offering then of the same-looking goat, if that makes sense, for the house of Israel is made. So we have there a prefigurement of Christ. We have the, if, if we imagine that those two goats, because they're supposed to be similar in appearance, are one in, in the mind, um, then we have a prefigurement of Christ's crucifixion. So he's driven out, uh, Christ is crucified outside the city walls. And then we have uh, this uh, offering uh, ascending up in heaven. So we have a prefigment of the ascension as well. And, now, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, it's fine if you have a question. No, well, I, it's not a question, but I, I'm, 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 again, backfilling a little bit because uh, I'm, I'm conscious of the context in which some of our listeners are listening to this. Mm. And so this may sound you know, kind of, um, you know, Christianity 101 to you. But I just want to point out that the Yom Kippur sacrifice was the one time of the year when the high priest offered the sacrificial offering for the remission of sins of all Israel, of the entire Jewish nation. And at the risk of being tried, of course, um, the, the, the crucifixion, Jesus' sacrifice, was the ultimate fulfillment of that because it was the sacrifice for the remission of sins of all Israel in the real sense, which is all of mankind, um, you know, all of Israel, both, you know, born and adopted in, all of pe the people of God. And so uh, there's a natural parallel there between Yom Kippur and the crucifixion and the Mass because as Yom Kippur was the offering for the sins of the entire nation, the mass is a is a um, instantiation of the of the offering sacrificial offering of the sins for all of mankind. 
Exactly. And what you say there about a renewal of creation is, is really important because when he enters the Holy of Holies, the priest takes or took the blood of these offerings and he spattered them one, one at a time uh, in the Holy of Holies, then on the veil that divided the Holy of Holies from the Hechal, uh, so from the next part of the temple along, uh, seven times which is anyone familiar with uh, Jewish gematria or uh, kind of numerology, I guess that would translate as, uh, would tell you that seven is the number for creation. So what we have at Yom Kippur is God and humanity being brought back into contact, um, which hasn't really been possible uh, since the, the fall properly. So what Christ does is he affects that reunion kind of once and for all. So he restores those right relations uh, and makes it permanent restoration, which leads me on to the Mass. When we celebrate the Mass, we are participating actively in that salvific event. We're on Calvary. We're in the empty tomb. And we're actually on the threshold of heaven with Christ when we receive Holy Communion. In fact, the Church Fathers talk about entering heaven when we receive Holy Communion. So that's really how Yom Kippur relates to the Mass. It's in terms of this, uh, this reunion of heaven and earth, and that's why it's so important to recognize it. Somebody asked me a, um, a while ago a question. I'm not sure I had a good answer to it, so it's a little unfair for me to ask you if you have a good answer to it, which was um, uh, if, if Judaism and if the Jewish sacrificial system was a prefigurement of the sacrifice of Christ, why, didn't, why is Passover, why did the crucifixion take place on Passover and not Yom Kippur? I think because of this process of anamnesis, the only way of signaling, well, let me explain what anamnesis is first of all. It's a making present of a past reality, so that you're actually participating in it at the time. So when we have Passover at the Seder, what we're doing is not just participating in a meal with our friends and family, but with the whole of Israel throughout all the generations right back to that original event. And that's what we do in the Mass. We are celebrating not just um, not just the, the commemoration of a meal, you know, uh, like in Protestantism where they, they say, oh, it's the memorial in the normal sense. What we're doing is the Hebrew sense of the Kron, which is making presents. Um, and I think if you're going to signal to people that you, you are participating actively in the same self-event, the major feast in the Jewish calendar that would enable that connection to be made would be Passover. Good. Um, if, I, if I may point out a much less relevant, in some sense, certainly much less cosmically important aspect of why it's uh, that Jewish, Jewish theology, right? The, the, the rabbis always taught that when the Messiah comes, He's going to come on Passover since that's, that's also true. Yeah. You know, since since the Exodus from Egypt was a prefigurement of the true deliverance that would come when the Messiah came. Since the prefigurement was was Passover, the realization is going to have to be on Passover. Absolutely, yeah. I know that's a much lower level. Um, 
No, right. no, but it's equally, equally true and equally beautiful. Um, yes, I mean, of, of course, uh, maybe I'm jumping the gun with what I'm saying. Um, but, no, what you say is absolutely right. It, it was prefigured. I think we then have to ask, in what way was it prefigured in Passover? And how was God preparing us specifically? And he was ultimately preparing us for the beauty of the Mass and the beauty of being with him in the Mass. So I think that's kind of what I was trying to get at. The um, uh, I, 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 I know that I've said this before on the show, um, but it, it bears repeating, which is the entire story of the Exodus from Egypt, the entire story of Passover as a prefigurement of the coming of the Messiah, from the Jews being slaves to the Pharaoh in Egypt, being a picture of mankind being slaves to the power of Satan, the Jews being freed from the power of the Pharaoh, of, uh, the Pharaoh by passing through the waters of the Red Sea being a picture of humanity being freed from the power of Satan by passing through the waters of baptism, the Jews wandering in the desert for 40 years on the way to the promised land being a picture of us wandering through the desert of this life on the way to the true promised land, which is, of course, the heavenly Jerusalem, and what fed the Jews miraculously during their wandering through the desert for those 40 years, manna from oh, heaven, yeah. miraculous bread from heaven, which, of course, is a picture of the Eucharist. And it's very significant that in the West we have this tradition of um, unleavened bread as well, which is another direct, direct link not to manna, but certainly to matzah. And so there's another connection there being made um, with, with the flight itself, uh, which, of course, led to the wandering. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to maybe switch gears. First of all, let me just repeat the number here is 866-333-6279 if, if any of our listeners wish to call in with a question or a comment. But um, uh, I want to get to something else that you talked about in that letter. Uh, maybe I should go and read, read it in your words. But let me just introduce it by saying um, one can think of uh, scrupulous obedience to the law as being a kind of internalized scrupulosity or compulsion or or compunction, something kind of exaggerated and unnatural, or one can think of it as a gesture of love because what, I mean, we have so little we can give to God, so to speak, compared to what he's given us that, um, and I've heard this from, from Hasidic, from a Hasidic Jewish friend of mine, you know, his, his punctilious observance of the law isn't because he's afraid of God or because he's servile. It's because he can't do enough for God. It's just a gesture of the heart to show that however much he does for God, he wishes he could do more. So with um, that background, let me read from your letter, because I think that is kind of along the lines of what you were talking about. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so this is back to back to your letter on the blog. Um, the truth is that Jews are often misunderstood in their love of the law. So, too, are more traditional Catholics. Being scrupulous is the plague of anyone trying to be holy. That is true. But attention to detail in keeping the law, a desire to do what is right, is not the same as scruples, even if they might sometimes creep in. In Judaism, when someone becomes Torah observant, we say they are becoming religious. 
There is great rejoicing over this, not because it means people are finally, quote, doing what they are told and, quote, obeying the law, but because they are entering into a deeper relationship with Hashem, or as you might know him, the Lord. Becoming religious in Judaism is a romantic experience. You fall madly in love with God and you want to do anything to please him. You become aware of how small you are and how great he is and how wonderful it is that he has chosen you. Anything you want to add? Um, no, I, I think I, I thought very hard when I was writing that letter and um, the, the closest I could come to describing a relationship with God when you become religious or you become observant in either Judaism or Catholicism is just that you fall in love. Yeah. Uh, when you fall in love, you want to do anything and everything to please the other person. Nothing matters more to you than doing right by them. And that's how it is with God. And not only uh, doing it to please the other person, but um, the act of doing it as an, a gesture of love in itself. So Exactly. Um, I'll, I'll give a, maybe a very silly example which comes to mind. But um, when I was seven, I went to summer camp for the first time. They gave us these little name tags saying, hello, my name is so-and-so, what's yours? They were pre-printed, and you just were supposed to fill in your name. Anyway, I lost mine. I was traumatized, you know, as a seven-year-old. You know, everyone's going to make fun of me if I just have a handwritten little name tag instead of the official one. So, like, my mother stayed up all night, you know, very scrupulously drawing, like, a perfect imitation of the pre-printed one. And it was an act of love. It was a gesture of love. The, the the time and effort she put into, you know, so precisely imitating the typed letters and stuff, you know, that was a way of her expressing her love. So I, I think that's kind of what what we see and what we see in Orthodox Judaism and what we see in sometimes rigid Catholicism saying, you know, <laughs> you know, with, with air quotes around it, is yeah. that, um, you know, again, I mean, there's, there isn't much we can do. We, there's nothing we can do that's actually a value to God in the sense of something he needs. Um, it's a gesture of doing it. It's, it's a pouring ourselves into doing it as a, just an expression of love and, and as the little we can do to kind of um, express our love, which can be Absolutely. mistaken as a scrupulosity. Uh, it's interesting that you use... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. It's interesting that you use this uh, analogy of when you were a child, because that's the other way I, I go on to describe the relationship with God, um, is that you become, when you're observant, more perfectly his child. I mean, a good child is obedient. A good child wants to please their father and mother. And uh, so it is when you become religious, you're doing it because you want to enter more deeply into that familial relationship with God. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the film Mishpitzen. Yes, I've been many times. It's a favorite of mine. And it's one of mine, too. And I think part of it is because, um, well, for those who don't know the film, it's about an Orthodox Jewish family around the time of Sukkot, and they get these awful guests who are absolutely terrible to them. But they turn to God and they're, they're kind to them. But the, the, the asset I want to pick up in that film is the fact that they call God Abba. They call God Daddy. Um, and that's exactly the same kind of relationship that I'm trying to get at in this letter. It's that, that, that childlike 
trust, that humility, um, that childlike love and adoration. Yes, and, and since this is, um, well, it isn't anymore the year of mercy, but since we just went through the year of mercy, let me just kind of add something to that, which is um, I think that the relationship between a child and a loving father is really the best way to understand understand God's mercy because there's nothing, I mean, I mean, small children do a lot of destructive things and terrible things and they might, you know, break a precious vase or they might, um, excuse the <laughs> precise example, but they might soil their pants, you know, there are all kinds of kind of um, shameful things that they fall into. And your parents into. love you anyway. Exactly. I mean, there's nothing... Um, you know, there, some contrition might be wanted by the father. In other words, you know, if, if the father has told you a hundred times, don't climb on that dresser, you might knock it over, okay. knock over the porcelain figurine and you climb on the dresser anyway, knock over the figurine. He probably wants you to say, I'm sorry I didn't listen to you. You know, I'm sorry that I did this. But, you know, but there's no issue of, about forgiveness. Um, you know, it's absolutely, it's in, it's in the role. I'm going to say this again. I, I, I hope this doesn't make the show R rated. Um, it's really the, the relationship between us and God is, is very closely modeled in some sense on the relationship between a small child and a parent. And, um, it's not irrelevant that babies are not toilet trained. In other words, Babies reliably are continually soiling their pants, and we are continually, spiritually, so to speak, soiling our pants, falling into sin, doing yeah, things. We soil our souls. Excuse me. We soil our souls. We soil our souls exactly, and you know, a parent wouldn't think of not changing a diaper, and God wouldn't think of not forgiving us when we go to confession. Absolutely. And you know, there's another link with Yom Kippur there, isn't there? The white garment that you would put on at Yom Kippur, uh, symbolizing kind of cleanliness and holiness. Um, And when we go into confession, basically what we're doing is putting a white garment on our soul. Yes, and of Um, course that's also pictured um, very directly in in the baptismal garment. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, And at confirmation, of course, uh, years ago you would wear white for your confirmation. Yeah. And there's one other thing about this kind of um, uh, Jewish scrupulosity, so to speak, or observance of the law, and and it is expression of love that that I want to kind of inject here, which is when I became Catholic, it became kind of apparent to me that um, there is an analogy between religious Judaism or Jewish orthodoxy, Torah-observant Judaism, whatever you want to call it, and Catholic religious life, in a way, it's more parallel to Catholic religious life than it is to Catholic lay life, because the the the, the purpose, in some sense, of the Jewish law is to lift everything up to God and to make to incorporate every aspect of life into prayer, in some sense. To go ahead. Sorry, that, that's exactly what Kashrit is about. It's about elevating the mundane uh, so that everything you do is sanctified. So the clothing, you're, the cloth you're allowed to wear in your clothing, the food you're allowed to eat, the way you eat it, the combinations of food, um, everything has a law associated with it, but it's not because... 
we're slaves, it's because we want every mundane act to be an act of worship of God, and that's how it's turned into an act of worship of God. Absolutely. I think that is actually clearer in the old rites than it is in the new in terms of the transference. Um, the, the old rite was a lot more disciplined. You had kind of proper fasts and things during Advent and Lent, and you had, um, uh, you know, the, the fasts before feast days, like we do in Judaism, like we have a fast before Pesach, for example. Um, and it was this idea that you kind of, you, what you're doing with your, your body, you're having an impact on your soul. And I think that, that in the traditions of the old right, I think that's probably a bit more apparent than it is these days. And it's it's um, it's very apparent in traditional Catholic religious life. Um, uh, I mean, the, the, there's some rather simple-minded parallels, like um, the, uh, the the clothing that religious wear that separate them out. Uh, I, I'm familiar with the order of um, nuns that are Saint Faustina's order, and they wear. Uh, a kind of a veil which is like having blinders on so they can only look straight ahead so throughout the day i mean in other words it's impossible for them to forget that everything they're doing is kind of um uh fenced in you know restricted by you know in by this formal mechanism which forces them to maintain awareness that they've consecrated absolutely everything, even in their consciousness, they're walking down the hallway uh, to God. And, of course, they also observe, um, I, I, I had a rather short stint um, with the Carthusians, very short stint, and um, there's no issue about your... When you're praying the office in private in your cell, it is completely det- uh, dictated um, not only when you're kneeling and when you're sitting and when you're standing, but when your head is up, uh, when your hood is open and when your hood is closed, you know, when you're bowed down and when you're erect, all of that is dictated um, so that um, basically so that everything is put under the yoke of a rule. And that's not in order to enslave us, but it is in order to elevate even the bodily posture and absolutely everything to kind of um, stir it into this act of worship, to make it a part of the act of worship itself, including the, the bodily posture. Yeah, and I think the same would be, could be said for the priest during Mass. Um, in the old right, there are lots of rubrics about what he's to do, when, how, and the same with the, um, the deacons who are effectively Levites, if we're going to translate it into to Jewish terms. Um, and again, I think one of the comments that was often made to me when I started attending the Tridentine Mass was that maybe the, it was a bit too prescriptive, and people didn't like that because, again, they saw it as a legalism. But as you say, in the light of Jewish teaching, this idea of posture, this idea of every action you, you do, um, and focusing your mind, your heart, your soul on God and on his will, um, it all starts to make sense. And and there is also, um, I, this is probably deeper than I can go, but there is this incredible dynamic between uh, freedom and obedience. And um, our freedom, in a, in a sense, 
is the thing we hold most precious to us, and to submit it totally under obedience is a tremendous mortification. Yeah, I mean, the the other week, actually, I had a, a conversation with my, pre- with my parish priest. Um, I'm more or less Shoma when it comes to kind of contact with the opposite sex. So I don't um, have physical contact with, with men. I mean, handshakes, fine, but like, as in Jewish tradition, men and women are, are separated. My parish priest kept putting his hand on my elbow, and so I very politely, very gently just said, I know you don't mean anything by it, but... I am a Hebrew Catholic, and I'd, I'd prefer it if you you don't do that. And his immediate response was, be free in the Lord. And I said, no, Father, there's freedom and obedience. And I think that's what we're getting at. It's not that I'm doing it to be legalistic. It's that I'm doing it to be uh, conscious uh, of, uh, of holiness and the fact that I'm created for holiness. Yeah, and 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 um, uh, I'm not saying I'm not saying you know everyone has to do this law is fulfilled, but just as a personal devotion, it's something I do. And he he immediately thought I was being yeah. legalistic, but I'm not. I'm actually doing it to consecrate myself to God. Yeah, and and as I, I, again, I'm I'm not sure I can put this into words, but again, it's this this um, it's actually the theme of everything we're talking about today, which is what is mistaken as rigidity or scrupulosity uh, can easily be simply the mortification of freedom in order to accept the sacrifice of obedience because the sacrifice of our free wills in some sense, the turning over of our free wills to God, the acceptance of God's will in place of what we want is actually it's actually at the heart of, of conversion. It's at the heart of transformation in Christ. It's at the heart of what we can give God. Exactly. Absolutely. Couldn't couldn't say any better. Um, so uh, let me go. I guess I'll just go on with your letter. I doubt that we've reached the end of it today, which is fine. Um. um I'll, okay, I'll, I'll I'll repeat the uh, I'll, I'll I'll repeat one one um, paragraph and then and then go on. In Judaism, when someone becomes Torah observant, we say that they are becoming religious. There is great rejoicing over this, not because it means people are finally doing what they are told or obeying the law, but because they are entering into a deeper relationship with God, or as you might know Him, the Lord. Becoming religious in Judaism is a romantic experience. You fall madly in love with God and you want to do anything to please Him. You become aware of how small you are and how great He is and how wonderful it is that He has chosen you. Another way to look at it would be to say that you become more perfectly God's child. Contrary to popular thought, the idea of God being Father did not begin with the earthly Jesus. True, in knowing the Son, we came to know and distinguish the Father of the Trinity, properly speaking, but in terms of a paternal relationship, we have had that in Judaism as far back as Moses, if not beyond. Quote from Psalm 103, Is not he your Father who created you, who made you and established you? Excuse me, that's from Deuteronomy 32. And everyone knows that, and now Psalm 103, quote, As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. Uh, by the way, uh, now I'm stopping reading and interjecting uh, for myself. 
that that whole concept of fear of the Lord and fearing God, um, there's a there's a poverty in the English vocabulary, I think, because that that fear is not a servile fear, right? That fear is a, like being overwhelmed with awe and desire to please. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the other thing I think we actually struggle with in English is chesed, because uh, we tend to translate it love, and it's, it's not quite that either, because it encompasses mercy and um, kind of loving kindness. And I think those two kind of go together, the, the fear and the chesed. Um, it's God is all-loving, all-merciful, um, all-desiring for us. And when we think of fear in English, it doesn't make sense. But when we take into account God's chesed, his loving-kindness, and we see them together, then I think we, we start to get the, the proper picture of God. Yeah. And you, what that fear really is. That, that I, I don't know, um, I, I, I don't know if it's safe to push this too far, but as you were talking, I was thinking that, um, obviously, a phrase from uh, Jesus in Gethsemane, not my will, but thy will be done. And in a very trivialized sense, one could think that he's talking about fear in some sense. In other words, you, you do what someone else wants if you're really scared of them. But I, that's not what he means, of course. And I think that the, the fear in the fear of God in the Old Testament is more like not my will, but thy will be done. It's a, um, abdication of our will for God's will, which somehow flows into that underlying word which comes out fear. Yeah. I mean, perhaps we could summarize it by saying it's, it's fear of not loving God enough. It's fear of displeasing him rather than it being a kind of trembling because God's going to strike you down with a, a lightning bolt or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a, a desire to please him perfectly, yeah. Exactly. So I'll continue with your letter, the hopes that I might almost reach the end. <laughs> um <laughs> Let us go back to those passages above. Firstly, the accusation of scruples to the Pharisees is actually part of an inner Jewish debate. Look at Tractate Shabbat in the Talmud, and you can see it continued on for centuries. The first important thing to note is that Christ is not correcting the Jewish law itself. Rather, he is pointing out that at the heart of Judaism is God's mercy by which he draws us to him. That is the spirit of the law that really matters because the law is a tutor. And if you build the fence around the Torah too high, you will not be able to see the commandment and the purpose of it itself. And then quoting um, Jesus' words from Matthew 23, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. In Judaism, this principle is still practiced. When one becomes religious, one keeps the basics of the Torah first and builds up until one is fully observant. What matters is that you are trying and you are on the road to holiness. So I think you're pointing out here that Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees was not a condemnation of um, of the heart of Jewish law, because the heart of Jewish law is 
God's mercy. And in fact, according to Jewish law, as you point out later, the law must always take, in some sense, second place to uh, love of neighbor or, or saving someone else's life and so forth. But that the Pharisees were uh, essentially um, throwing out the, the 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 baby in order to save the bathwater. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what's often forgotten. I mean, Christ does actually say, "Do as they tell you." The, the, it wasn't that the um, I remember, it wasn't that the Pharisees were necessarily wrong in their interpretation of the law. What they were wrong about was the way they were carrying it out and perhaps being a bit too strict. Uh, the law itself remained. And, of course, we have the, the same idea with the magisterium in the church. Uh, we have a, a body of teaching that we're supposed to obey. And just because there can be a warning about being too strict, it doesn't mean that we don't actually obey the church's teaching. We're still called to do that. Exactly. I'll, I will continue with, with your letter. Um, finally, on the Good Samaritan, I say this. The priest and the Levite are traveling towards Jericho, not towards the temple. Contact with blood is a matter of ritual, not moral impurity. And the only need they would have had to worry about contact with it would have been if they had been traveling towards the temple. There is no problem in getting a bit bloody in Judaism, just make sure you wash in a mikvah so you are clean to worship. In fact, even if they had been traveling towards the temple, they still should have stopped because the law tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves, Leviticus 19. Yep, that didn't originate with Jesus either, except as the eternal word, of course. You can break any law in the Torah to save a life. The problem was not that they would have been breaking law had they stopped, but that they broke it by not stopping. I think there's something in, in the print that's maybe a bit clearer. What I say is that the law with a little L, you can break any law with a little L uh, in the Torah to save a life, uh, but the law with a capital L is focused on the preservation of life itself. And so to keep the Torah, sometimes, uh, you know, the, the little things might have to have faded away. Um, but again, that doesn't mean that uh, these things are superfluous. They're not at all. They're there, and they're there for a reason. Uh, it's just refocusing on the the law, which is mercy. Yeah, and and um, we only have a few minutes left, so it's dangerous to introduce this at this point in the show. But the 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 word law, the word Torah, in the Jewish context, opens up a whole cosmic world that goes far beyond what we think of as law when we're thinking of the Constitution or law school or whatever, because in fact, um, the, in some sense, the law is the relationship between the creator and creation. Yes. Um, I, I mean, it, it certainly encompasses natural law, which is almost a trivialization of it. But, but basically, um, God's action in the world, God's bringing the world into being, all of this gets folded into that, that word Torah or law. So, um, again, it's, it's not as legalistic as it sounds. It's actually about this cosmic relationship between, between, uh, creation, between the creator and between this unique 
intermediate role that man has of essentially mediating between creation and the creator, which is man's role in the universe in Old Testament Judaism, one could say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the <laughs> I can't remember who it is that says it, but there's a church father who says that the the, the Torah, meaning the Old Testament, is the first incarnation of Christ. Uh, it's the first uh, kind of revelation, in a way, of uh, of the Son, and the the Torah in Judaism does in a way, have a, a mediatory role between heaven and earth. Uh, it, it allows us to restore some of that relationship that was lost in Eden with, at the fall. So um, I agree wholeheartedly. With what Actually, um, I mean, the, the Torah is the word of God, is the written word of God, and it's not a coincidence that Jesus is the word of God. It's not a coincidence that the Torah in its place in the tabernacle in the Jewish synagogue is exactly the place of the Eucharist, the incarnate word of God in the host in the tabernacle in the Catholic Church. The Torah is, um, I mean, you, you were quoting a church father, which is a much better thing to quote than the top of Roy Shulman's head, but, but there is this, this cosmic parallel between the written word of God and the uncreated word of God, Jesus. Yeah, and it's also no accident that the the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written were placed in the Ark, which was in the Holy of Holies. Good point. Well, we really have come to the end of the hour. So um, I want to thank you. I, this has been wonderful. I, I think it's, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it's been a wonderful conversation that really um, delves into the the continuity between between um, the, the oneness and the inner oneness, in fact, between Catholicism and Judaism. So I just want to thank you for, for sharing with us. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I want to thank our listeners for having tuned in today and um, invite you to tune in again next week for um, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. Bye for now. <laughs>